even reading through this, uh-huh. I've been off the school board long enough that I'm not paying the detailed level right. of of attention to it. So it kind of is like, okay, no, what's this? What's this? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Hello, I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm excited to talk with my friend and school finance expert, Chandra Villanueva from the Center for Public Policy Priorities. If anyone in the state of Texas understands school finance better, I don't know them. (laughs) (laughs) Chandra, thanks for being with us today. And thanks for all your work on uh, trying to explain policy, trying to help good policy get passed. And uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Annette. I'm excited for you to be here and for us to talk about uh, House Bill 3 in particular uh, today, because while that was passed in the last legislative session and everybody was cheering uh, all the great things that Mm -hmm. came out of it, including some more funding for public schools, not everything that goes along with House Bill 3 is going to impact all districts the same. So we're going to talk about that. Great. Do you want to do you want to tell my listeners about yourself first? Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm Chandra Villanueva. I am the director of economic opportunity with the Center for Public Policy Priorities here in Austin, Texas. I've been with the center for almost ten years now, and um, I've just had the privilege of spending the last, you know, almost ten years thinking about nothing but how we fund our schools in Texas, which is what you need to become a school <laughs> finance expert. <laughs> well, that's that's great, and appreciate your expertise and your passion around this. You spend a lot of time in the legislature. Legislature mm-hmm. during session and probably during meetings that aren't happening right now yeah. <laughs> because of unique situations with the coronavirus. Um, give us a high level overview then of House Bill 3. Yeah, so House Bill 3 was a very large school finance bill that was passed in 2019 by the state legislature. And the year before, in 2018, we had a school finance commission that met for that full year that really helped them sort of in the initial thinking and drafting of the bill. Um, and at the end of the day, we ended up with a bill that had about nearly a $12 billion price tag. And we see that $6 billion goes to the classrooms and about $5 billion goes to property tax cuts. So when they say they gave 11 plus billion to school finance, they, that's to the schools, that's not accurate. They gave a little over half and the rest of it was in tax cuts. Which, right. as we'll discuss, has implications down the road on school funding. Exactly. Um, all of the funding that went for the tax cuts basically just switched the tax responsibility from local taxpayers to the state. But those aren't dollars that are able to be invested into our classroom. And that's really kind of my main concern about this bill overall is that it sets up a, a future way of cutting property taxes perpetually, but it doesn't make any future promises to our classrooms. There's nothing about inflation on our base level funding or tackling any of the issues that were not fully addressed within the bill. Now, school finance is incredibly complicated. Uh, my 19 years on the school board, it you know obviously changed over those years uh, in the way they funded it, in the way that the boards could go to the community for support through taxes. But it's it's not level across all districts, and of course, everybody listening has heard about Robin Hood and the challenges that 
that system brings to to our state. But a lot of this it revolves around a big inequity in the in the taxpayer. Exactly. Right. Yeah, there's definitely there's when I think of school finance equity, I think of both student equity and tax equity. And so while the bill did do some improvements on student equity, there is also some changes that are going to hurt equity on how much funding actual students get. Um, But when it comes to tax equity, that's where we took the largest steps backwards. And to just really quickly explain how the school finance system works in really general terms, you can think of every school district receiving, we usually call it an entitlement, but you can think of it as a a bucket or a cup um, that says how much money they're allowed to have to run their educational programs. And the size of that cup is decided by uh, the complex formulas that TEA runs every district through. If you're unable to fill your cup on your own, the state will equalize that. They'll give you state aid to fill up your cup. If you overflow your cup, that's recapture. So we've seen that these districts get really upset with the amount of money that they are paying in recapture. But it wasn't the recapture system that was the problem. It was the size of the cup. And so to address these growing recapture payments, instead of making the cups bigger for everybody, the state is going to allow some districts to drop their tax rate so that they're just collecting less revenue overall. So that's where we're going to get into these equity issues. The system is really built on this principle of equal taxation for equal revenue. And now we're going into a system where we have equal revenue for very different levels of taxation. Well, that's been the case all along, at least for some time. But this is right, made well, it even even worse, it. right? Right, and and this sort of the the idea for equal revenue for equal taxation is really for the what we call tier one of our system, and then we have a whole separate tier around enrichment, which is where a lot of the inequities that we've seen in the past are located, and those were actually made much worse in HB three, the way that we do enrichment based funding. And the reason uh, I'm talking with Chandra today is that. Uh, she just released a new paper on the ho- the impact of House Bill 3 and through the Center for Public Policy Priorities. And I'll put that link in the show notes and so oh, people, our readers can, or our listeners can read it <laughs> <laughs> and become readers. Um, so let's talk about some of the good things of House yeah. Bill 3. What, did you, what do you see as some of the good things? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was you know, new money um, for our schools. There was an actual recognition that money in education matters and that we need to make these investments. So that was one of the greatest things that happened with HB3. Now, did the $6 billion that they put in cover the $5.4 billion that they cut? Now, they've come back with a little bit since then, uh, plus this. So right, are, right. Are um, we ahead of where we were before we, they did the I big feel, cuts? I feel that overall we've about broken even Okay. Um, considering not only did they cut, you know, $5.4 billion, but if you consider inflation growth every mm-hmm. single year. So that was one of the kind of good things in this bill. The new money within what we call the basic allotment, our base level of funding per student, there was enough new money put into there to cover inflation for the two years going forward. But it doesn't cover inflation for the four years that we left that funding level stagnant. Yeah. So there's all the, there were some gains. So I think we're about even to where we were um, statewide in, at 2011. So that's one of the challenges with this is when you're educating 5.3 million kids, the price tag grows very quickly. So we're always talking about billions here. And if you look at the average per student expenditure 
by state, where do we rank? We are still pretty low. Um, even with these really big investments, it's, I don't think it's going to move the needle very much. I keep hearing that we're about 38th okay. in the nation. I've heard lower. And lower. 43rd. 43rd. But, yeah. Um, yeah, and it depends on whose rankings you're using. But because we are such a large state, the fact that we put in $5 billion or almost $6 billion for um, classroom investments, that doesn't really move the needle that much in our national rankings. So... We may move up one spot. We didn't get anywhere near uh, like Even national average, average yeah. or anything yeah. like that. Okay. So so more money. And that additional money, those additional funds were directed to be used in certain ways. Right. Yeah. So we did. We just increased sort of base level funding, which is sort of the tide that rises all ships. Everybody benefits from that. Um there was one of my favorite parts of the bill actually is sort of a shift in thinking around what happens after graduation. So we created this college career military readiness sort of bonus program, and it's got three parts to it. And those three things together, I think are really key. Um, we're going to have every kid um, be eligible to be reimbursed to take the ACT, SAT, TSI, or other industry certification. So kids will know that they're college ready. That's great. They're going to be required to fill out the FAFSA form, the the federal financial aid form. So they're going to know that they're college ready. And they're also going to know that they have resources to go to college. And that, that starts... Uh Next year. Next year, right. And then we also created a bonus program for school districts so that they get um, $5,000 for every non-economically disadvantaged student after thir- certain threshold, $3,000 for a, uh, or yeah, for an, I'm sorry, $5,000 for an economically disadvantaged, $3,000 for a non-economically disadvantaged, and $2,000 for a special education student that meets certain criteria that proves that they're college or career or military ready. And for those bonuses, you do have to meet sort of a certain threshold of students. I think for the non-economically disadvantaged, it's set at 25%. So once you get 25% of your kids college or career ready, then you start drawing down money from this bonus program. So I think the three things combined um, are really going to create incentives for districts to think about what happens to their kids after graduation. So to dig a little deeper on the college and career readiness uh, Mm -hmm. focus, if those students graduated in last May, did that money kick in or is it No, this is going in? forward. Yeah, uh, starting next count, year. Not counting this year, but right. next year. Yep. Okay. So uh, so that means there does it can they prove that on graduation day that those students are college and career ready? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There, there will so be it's students. Not they have to track them further in the right. system. Right. I mean, for some of them, they will, um, sort of depending on which of the bonus funds that they're mm-hmm. going for. Um, for the career readiness, it's you're eligible if your student is graduating with an associate's degree, um, you know, if they have so many college from credits school. from right. high school with an associate, yeah. if they have so many credits um, for the college readiness, they have to do well on the ACT, SAT, and enroll in college in the fall immediately after graduation. For the military readiness, they have to pass the military readiness test, um, the em- enrollment test that the, the military has, and then also actually enroll in the military um, immediately after graduation. So they will have to track some of these students to make sure that they actually enrolled and attended. But um, TEA is working on all of the different ways to data track, especially for our students who go to out-of-state colleges. Right now, we're pretty good at keeping track of who stays in Texas, but they're going to have to do a little bit more data sharing to keep track of our our students who leave Texas. Sure. 
And they they have to, I assume, not just apply and enroll, but attend college. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so it's going to take a little while, I think, for some of this money to come in, um, and and to get all the kind of there's still a little bit of rulemaking going around on this too. But it is the first time that schools are really being asked to to monitor and think about and encourage students to go on beyond high school. Are there any guidelines how they have to use those funds that come back to the districts? Yeah, they must use them um, in eighth grade through high school to promote college and um, career readiness. Okay. So it is for, you know, beefing up your counseling staff, offering more due credit, you know, doing all those kinds of things that will make sure that future students are also prepared. Great. Another thing that they did was recognize that not all students come to the table or come to schools with the same challenges, even if you're on the free and reduced lunch as a student, they recognize that different populations of students, different home situations should be recognized. Would you address that? Yeah, definitely. So um, that's what we call our compensatory education funding. And before HB3, it was based just if you are enrolled in the free or reduced lunch program. And I think we all know that family stability plays a a big role in how well a child is prepared for school. And there's huge differences between, you know, maybe a child who's on reduced lunch and has two working parents who are just low-wage earners, but they have this stable household and everything's going well. Or you could have a kid on the other end of the spectrum who's moved three times in four months and is in their fourth elementary school this year. And so they're trying to really address that by now basing that funding not just sort of a blanket, everybody gets 20% additional funding if you're on free or reduced lunch, but they're actually going to look at the census block track that each student lives in. And so they'll get different levels of funding based on where their students are living. And they're still working on the full matrix of sort of what are the kind of indicators within those census tracks. Um, But it is a, it's a different approach. I have a lot of hopes um, for that because Concentrations of poverty are real. When you're dealing with kids with greater instability, you should get more funding. One of our concerns around that, though, is sort of how rural areas are going to sort of pan out because the census blocks are larger because our populations are more sparse. So we're Mm -hmm. not going to see that sort of deniation that you would see in more urban areas where the census tract has a large you know, concentration of kids in a certain circumstance. When everyone's on a very large track of land, you have your richest people and your poorest people in in the same same. census block, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's going to be one that we're going to be monitoring um, as we get more data over the years to see how well this is actually addressing some of our our rural challenges. That's, That's interesting. Tell us about what what right. else we need to know about House Bill 3. Yeah, so it's gotten a lot of attention for their um, changes to pre-K. We're now requiring every district to provide a full-day pre-K program for eligible four-year-olds. Unfortunately, we're continuing to fund the program at a half-day program. Um as a kind of what I like to call the, the Texas two-step to early education funding, we created what 
they call the early education allotment. And that gives you an additional 10% of base level funding for every student in kindergarten through third grade who is economically disadvantaged or an English language learner. And school districts have been told that they can invest those dollars into full-day pre-K, but we're not directly funding that full-day pre-K. But we've also told districts that they have to run literacy academies for all of their teachers in the early grades and that they also can use the early education allotment for that funding. So we did this, you know, emphasis on creating more funding for early education. But for me, for a system to run efficiently, the funding needs to be cost-based and student-directed. And how much, how many kindergarteners through third graders you have who are low income or English language learners has absolutely nothing to do with what it actually costs to run a full day pre-K program. So that's one of the areas that I'm urging them to come back and fully fund our pre-K program. Those students, if they're in a full day, should be counted as a full day student like any other grade. I think that early education allotment is going to be needed, but in kindergarten through third grade to make sure that we're maintaining the gains we're trying to get in pre-kindergarten. So that's that's one area. And then um, bilingual education is another one. We created an, a new funding called the dual language allotment so that any um, English language learner um, or a native English speaker who's in a two-way dual language program is eligible for 10% additional fund, or I'm sorry, 5% additional funding. Um, only 20% of our English language learners are actually in one of these dual language programs. Yeah, there's not that many of them around. Yeah, and they're just, they're not around. We've definitely seen some teacher shortages in the certifications that we need for these kinds of programs. But we've basically left 80% of our English language learners behind in this bill. So I think that's another area that we really need to come back and think about how do we support that student population because they are a growing population and we can't just provide additional funding for 20% of them and then not worry about what's happening to 80%. To 80% of them, which is a large number in the state of Texas. Right. What else do we need to know about House Bill 3 oh. and the impact on the tax structure, yeah, on, the, on the, the tax, impacts to ed- education? <laughs> the tax structure stuff is definitely, I guess, the most confusing and the hardest to get around your, your brain around. So I do encourage everyone to read my report. But basically, they work to cut property taxes by two ways within HB3. First off, they're doing what they call a statewide compression, where everybody's tax rate is going to go down by seven cents. So, and we tax per hundred dollars of property value. So, instead of taxing by a dollar per hundred dollars of value, everyone's going to be taxing at ninety-three cents per hundred dollars of value. But the state will make up the difference to keep everyone whole, and that's where it shifts the responsibility of funding from um, the local property tax into the state. Um, One of the reasons that they did this is a lot of people do feel like their property taxes are growing beyond what they can pay, um, and it is putting some strain on a lot of on families across Texas. Um, The challenge, though, with this is that it doesn't change anything with appraisal growth. And that's what's really driving property tax bills. It's the value of our homes keeps going up. Um, not our tax rates. So even though we're going to see this seven cent reduction for this year, your average homeowner might not actually see an actual savings in their tax 
bill because their appraisal growth might grow more than what the savings they would have gotten from the tax rate cut. So don't be shocked when you look at your tax bill and you're like, I thought they cut property taxes and you're actually paying more. If anything, they've just slowed the growth of that bill. Um, what I would have recommended instead of compressing the tax rate is to increase the homestead exemption, which reduces what you're actually, the value of the home that you're being taxed on. Um, that's the way to really help homeowners um, and target that relief to homeowners. With the statewide compression, it's both businesses and homeowners that are benefiting, and that's a huge cost to the state. So again, you need to figure out who you're actually trying to target and help. And if it's homeowners, this probably wasn't the right approach to do it. I believe Senator Seliger had a bill that was trying to compress the rate that the value could grow and, and the taxpayer be responsible for those increase in taxes. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I believe, it didn't get through. And it didn't get through. And I believe he also had a homestead exemption bill. And so there are, you know, other ways to sort of address that that really targets homeowners. Um, who are having the hardest ability to pay. And so then this statewide compression is going to continue each year. So if statewide, if we see more than 2.5% revenue growth in our property tax collections, statewide will reduce rates to stay with under that growth cap, um, and the state will have to kind of make up the difference. The comptroller just estimated that we've seen 11% value growth. <laughs> growth wow. in the revenue. So that's going to be a huge chunk for the state to take on. And that's going to cost billions upon billions of dollars, dollars that don't go to our classrooms. So this is the concern. And the two and a half percent, explain compression, explain where that came from or or well, who knows where two and a half? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it came in the last session as well for school districts, cities, and and counties. Right, right. Yeah. So they did a similar thing for cities and counties. Um Cities and counties have always been treated differently, though. Like, so when cities and counties see growth, their budgets would benefit. When school districts saw growth, their budgets didn't benefit necessarily. Usually just their recapture payment would go up. Yeah. If you see a huge... Or the state benefited. Yeah. Right. So the state would benefit because their recapture payments would go up. So cities and counties and school districts have always had a very different experience when you see rising property values. And that was one of the big challenges with the system was that schools were being um, basically denied the prosperity of the rest of the state because it's all based on formula funding. So now even with that 2.5% revenue growth that's allowed, that's not going to help schools. It still is just going to go to their recapture payment overall, but it doesn't change the formula funding. So even though they're still allowed to see an increase in their local property tax collections, it doesn't change what the state says they're ultimately allowed to keep for their classroom. So it's a, it's a huge cost to the state, but it's not benefiting our children. Let's talk about where in the paper you compare a high wealth district and a low wealth district. I think that would be District 2 and District 1 in your paper. District 1 uh, has, for example, uh, per, per student wealth of 147000 right. and the, the wealthy District 2 has $1.4 exactly property wealth per Right, per yeah. Student. So when you look at that, yeah, on a per student basis, we're looking at basically if the state didn't come in and do something, we'd be asking one school district to educate their kids with $1,000 per student and the other district to 
educate with $20,000 per student. Huge, huge disparities. And that's why we have the recapture system and why we direct state aid to certain school districts. And so then that gets into the, the individual compression that they've built in on top of the statewide compression. So first we go down, we cut the tax rates for statewide, but then we look at the individual districts. And like I said, we saw a statewide uh, property revenue growth of around 11%. Well, there's a handful of districts that are really leading that property value growth. It's not an even distribution across the state. Um, So those districts that are really leading that property growth are going to be able to drop their tax rates even more. And the bill does say that you can't go more than a 10% gap in that um, what we call tier one funding, which is sort of the base level funding that's supposed to be able to provide everything you need to meet your Texas essential knowledge and skills. It usually doesn't for most districts, which is why we have the enrichment tier. So what we're going to see is that that property wealthy district is going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to see property value growth year after year, while our poor district isn't. So that wealthy district will be able to drop its tax rate until they're down to 10 cents lower than the the property poor district. But they're going to be getting a roughly the same amount of money per student so through if, the formula. If I'm a taxpayer in District 2, the wealthy district, my pennies, the penny per you know hundred dollar mm-hmm. valuation, brings in more revenue exactly than what in in the low income or low wealth district. So it's it is again as we talked before a taxpayer inequity. As it really well. is. It really is. And then you know those issues will just get worse over time because then. If you're, you know, a business owner and you're looking to open a new business or expand an existing business, are you going to pick the school district that has the 10 cent higher tax rate or the 10 cent lower tax rate? Because the example that I used in my paper is roughly based on Alamo Heights and Edgewood ISD in San Antonio, which are probably less than 10 miles apart. So those are real economic decisions mm-hmm. that companies are going to be making. And then if they all keep locating in the high wealth area, they're just going to make the wealth greater and then the tax rate will drop even further while other communities will get left behind. It's a fait accompli. Yeah. And just think of like when Amazon was looking for their second headquarters. If HB3 was in place at the time and they chose Texas, they could have literally bought down their own tax rate by just dumping enough money into a community. And we shouldn't be letting businesses set their own tax rates. Your paper has some recommendations in it. Yes. Would you like to share those? Definitely, definitely. Um, Our very first one is that we really need to address that individual district compression. Um, My biggest fear is that this will potentially lead to a lawsuit going forward because it was over 30 years of case law that we got to this principle of equal revenue for equal taxation, and that was completely abandoned in this bill. I think it's really good for every community to sort of have the same dog in the fight. We all tax at the same way, and then the state plays a role equalizing between us. I think that's a very important thing to preserve in our system. And unfortunately, we lost that in HB3. We definitely need to make sure that we're adjusting our formulas for inflation. Um, what this bill really is is sort of a glide path off of the MO taxes. And that means the maintenance and operation. The maintenance or and basically operation. Basically, your day to day working. Yeah, everything for to run a school, and that's the biggest part of your property tax. But if we just let HB3 go on, eventually we will no longer have an MO tax rate, but we don't have any plan 
to replace that revenue with anything else. And we have no plans to invest in our schools. So it seems like if we want to make these tax rate reductions, the very least we could do is couple it with an inflation adjustment to schools, say that we first have to make schools whole, keep them up to pace with rising costs before we start investing in tax cuts. Um, so that's another one of our huge recommendations. Um, of course, we want to see full-day funding for pre-K um, for all of the eligible four-year-olds who are now entitled to a full-day program. I'd love to see them come back and work some more on our ELL students, our English language learners, and making sure that those programs are are up to date. But I think one of the most important things that, that they could do as well is just even try to figure out how much it costs to provide a basic level of education. I think that's kind of one of the the things that gets lost in a lot of this is that our entire system is 100% arbitrary. Everything is based on this, what we call the basic allotment, this base level number, which is now $6,160. There's not one iota of data, evidence, thought, anything behind that number. It's literally what can we spend? But then we set up all these programs that say we spend 10% more of that level on this, but 10% more of what? A number that we pulled out of thin air. So how do we know that English language learners need 10% more when we just made up the number that we're basing it on? Which they probably need more, as your paper points out. And at one point, they were actually um, considering setting the basic allotment at $6,000 and $30 as sort of a nod to the 60 by 30 plan that the higher ed so coordinating board. It's totally random. It just shows how absolutely arbitrary. And I think our kids deserve more than arbitrary. So, and that was one of my biggest disappointments with the school finance commission that met in 2018 is I thought that would be the first question they asked was how much does it cost? Where are we starting from? Because that's what Ross Perot did in the eighties, the last time we did such a major, major overhaul of our system. So, you know, my my hopes and dreams. I thought we would recreate the Perot Commission, but instead, you know, they went directly towards sort of tweaking around the edges instead of asking that fundamental question of how much does it actually cost to achieve what we're trying to achieve? Rather than how much extra revenue are we going to have this session? Right, right. And and other Which states, a- you know, recently have done this. Um, Illinois a couple of years ago also redid their funding formulas pretty extensively. But the first thing they did was sort of come up with, I think it was around like 32 things that they considered an essential part of a high quality education. They talked about how much, you know, do you want, how many counselors do you want? How many nurses do you need? What kind of classroom ratios are you looking at? And they priced all that out. And it was their version of their legislative budget board that did all that. And so they kind of figured out what are the essential elements of a high quality education? What are those costs? And then they saw how many of their districts were actually bringing in those levels of revenue and made adjusting to their formulas um, to ensure that all districts had the resources they need to do the things that they said were important. And, and we just skipped that most fundamental step. So until we do something like that, our system will just be arbitrary. Wow. Well, that gives us a lot of hope. <laughs> I know. <laughs> not, not that that's really news. Moving into the next session, the immediate discussion once House Bill 3 was passed was there wasn't funding guaranteed moving forward. Where do you see that going next session with gas, at, I mean, with oil at $31 a barrel I know. yesterday? Yeah, so. yeah. So I think that's going to be a huge wake-up call. I think we're not going to really know what the cost of HB3 is going forward until we see what our property value growths are, because so much of it is about reducing those property tax rates. So 
I think that the legislature should also reconsider is 2.5% too low of a threshold? Can we really afford a 2.5% revenue growth cap for school districts if we're not seeing the revenue estimate that we anticipated now that we're seeing such changing values around oil and gas and things like that? But we really need to start thinking about what kind of revenue system really supports the needs of our state as a whole. And going back to the Perot Commission, when they passed HB 72 in 1984, they also also passed a tax bill alongside that was worth about $5 billion in today's dollars, but it wasn't just one tax. Like last session, they toyed around with the idea of increasing the sales tax by a penny, but that's not what they did in 1984. They looked at a whole slew of taxes, and they made slight rate increases on this and expand the sales tax base to include another thing. You know, so it was lots of teeny tiny tweaks to our tax code to generate funding. And I want to compare that to the summer when my husband and I were in Wyoming and we went river rafting on the Snake River and our guide was a school teacher during the year. But he just loved doing this so much that, and he'd done it forever uh, in many countries. So he, he still did it in Wyoming. And so my first question is, how does the state of Wyoming treat education? And he said, oh, they invest heavily in it. They pay us well. Much of our tourism and oil and gas money goes to it. It's great. They really invest in it. And I want to remind our listeners that this is the taxes that we're paying are investments in the future of our state and our communities. So it's not, oh, I don't want to pay taxes. It's, well, do I want to invest in my community? Do I want to invest in the students when the state invested in me years ago? Yeah, I think that's such an important message because too often our legislature also tries to pit health care against education as though we can't have both. And I think with the current climate that we're in right now and what we're dealing with with the coronavirus and the spread that we're seeing that we don't have the access to health care that we need in this state and we shouldn't have to sacrifice a high-quality education to ensure that we have a, a reasonable level of public safety and public health as well. Well, I agree. And I think that I'm sitting here looking at an image of Texas sitting on your desk. And, you know, I was born here, raised here, lived most of my life in Texas. And I want Texas to be the best the way I always thought it was growing up. And you grow up and you learn a few of the details and you're like, oh, maybe maybe we could do a little better, right? We always can do a little better, <laughs> yes. But I mean, yeah, I, I believe Texas is a great state and I want it to be the greatest state for education. Great. Well, Shandra, thank you for your work on this for for all these years. And I see you almost every time I go to the Capitol. <laughs> and I appreciate your work for not only the Center for Public Policy Priorities, but for the state of Texas and for the great policy advice that that you you give us and for just the incredible expertise that you provide around school finance because having been involved in it for so many years it is still so complicated and challenging and i hope uh, our listeners will will read this paper and share it with their legislators please yeah. uh, the more they get it <laughs> yeah definitely share it with your legislators desk. share it with your neighbors mm-hmm. and i also i try to make myself as accessible as possible i'm always um able and willing to answer any questions that people have. You know, we we try to, you know, make sure that this information is accessible so that people can have informed discussions with their representatives. Well, great. Thank you again for your work and your passion around this. And thank you for listening to Annette on Education. <laughs>